This hearing will come to order. Let me welcome you all to the fourth hearing for the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 114th Congress. Thanks again to Senator Cardin for uh, your work and cooperation in holding this important hearing today. Uh, this hearing is intended to address what in many ways has been a forgotten threat, the threat of North Korea. While our nation's attention is rightly focused on the Middle East, the North Korean threat has grown exponentially. While there seems to be a, a falling asleep, so to speak, at the switch when it comes to North Korea. According to experts, North Korea may already have as many as 20 nuclear warheads and may have as many as 100 within the next five years. The regime has already tested nuclear weapons on three separate occasions in 2006, 2009, and 2013 in violation of multiple UN Security Council resolutions. According to the Director of National Intelligence's 2015 Worldwide Threat Assessment, North Korea's nuclear weapons and missile programs pose a serious threat to the United States and to the security environment in East Asia. In April of this year, Admiral Bill Gortney, the commander of North American Aerospace Defense Commander NORAD, said that North Korea has developed the ability to launch a nuclear payload on its very own, a KN-08 intercontinental ballistic missile that is capable of reaching the United States. As Admiral Gortney stated, Pyongyang has the ability to put a nuclear weapon on a KN-08 and shoot it at the homeland. Besides the conventional military threats, North Korean cyber capabilities are growing, as evidenced by North Korea's attack on South Korean financial and communication systems in March of 2013 and the Sony hack of earlier this year. Earlier this month, the Center for International and Strategic Studies, led by Dr. Victor Cha, who is here with us today, produced a great study that described North Korea's dangerous new cyber capabilities. The report stated, North Korea is emerging as a significant actor in cyber cyberspace with both its military and clandestine organizations gaining the ability to conduct cyber operations. North Korea's regime is also responsible for horrific human rights abuses. North Korea maintains a vast network of political prison camps where as many as 200,000 men, women, and children are confined to atrocious, atrocious living conditions and are tortured, maimed, and killed. The landmark 2014 United Nations Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in North Korea found, and I quote, systematic, widespread, and gross human rights violations that in the commission's view entailed crimes against humanity. Yet efforts to counter these destabilizing North Korean policies and the imminent threat the Kim Jong-un regime poses the world have yet to be completely dealt with. The policy of strategic patience, in my view, has been a strategic failure. This past August, I traveled to the region and met with top leaders in Japan and South Korea, including President Park, who will be visiting Washington next week. In these meetings, I heard a tremendous amount of concern regarding the growing North Korean threat and the direction of U.S. policy. So if this strategic policy uh, will not change behavior, then I believe Congress needs to change the behavior. Yesterday, I introduced a bill with several of my colleagues on this committee called the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act of 2015, which seeks to take decisive new action to counter the North Korean threat. This legislation corrects our policy and mandates broad new sanctions against individuals involved in North Korea's nuclear program proliferation activities, as well as against officials involved in the regime's continued human rights abuses and destabilizing cyber activities. It would also codify two exec executive orders released in 2015 authorizing sanctions against entities undermining U.S. national and economic security in cyberspace. It's time to immediately reverse course and begin applying more pressure to North Korean regime through additional financial sanctions, increased military engagement with our allies in the region, and more assertive diplomacy with China, which wields significant control over the fate of the region. And we must remember that more than 20 years ago, North Korea already pledged to dismantle its nuclear program, 
Yet we now see a regime that has no respect for international agreements or international norms. The United States should never engage in negotiations with Pyongyang without imposing strict preconditions that North Korea take immediate steps to halt its nuclear program, cease all military provocations, and make credible steps to respecting the human rights of its own people. If the United States does not pursue increased actions against North Korea now, we could face much greater and immensely more consequential challenges in the future. Now is the time to enact a comprehensive strategy to quell North Korea's aggression and give our allies in the region a reason to trust us and our enemies a reason to fear us. With that, Senator Cardin, I appreciate you being here today, and I turn to you for your comments. Well, well thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for convening this hearing. Uh, I think it's very important that we have this discussion uh, in regards uh, to North Korea. When one visits uh, the Republic of Korea, land and Seoul, and take the very short trip up to the demilitarized zone, you recognize the security challenges on the Korean Peninsula for our ally and friend, the Republic of Korea. Uh, but the issues go far beyond that, uh, the impact that North Korea is having on the security of that region. Uh, we know uh, that they are uh, reaching the capacity for a functional nuclear weapon. They have enough fecal material now for nuclear bombs. We know that. We know that they're testing, and we know that they have not at all adhered to any of its international uh, understandings or commitments or statements that they have made. And then, as you pointed out, they're aggressive in the cyber area. Uh, we saw what happened to Sony. And you, you quoted the UN uh, Commission uh, on Inquiry in the 2014. Uh, let me just quote one more thing from their finding. They said, there is no country in the world that is equal to the uh, extent of human rights abuses as uh, North Korea. So they're number one uh, in their uh, brutal treatment of their own citizens. It includes large-scale executions, murders, enslavement, torture, imprisonment, rape, forced abortions, and other sexual violence. Operates a series of secretive prison camps where perceived opponents of the government are sent to face torture and abuse, starvation, and forced labor. Fear of collective punishment is used to silence dissent. There is no independent media, functioning civil societies, or religious freedom. So this is a country where we have very, very serious challenges on all fronts, on the security front, on its nuclear proliferations, on its human rights, on its interference. Uh, so many areas uh, that, that call upon our attention. As we looking at the rebalance to Asia, we must look at our policies towards North Korea. So I'm particularly pleased that uh, this hearing is taking place. Uh, our goals uh, for uh, North Korea are pretty simple. Uh, we want to stop proliferation. We want a denuclearized peninsula. It's been our stated purpose. We want to have regional security. And we certainly want the people of North Korea and the entire region to have basic human rights and that their opportunities are respected uh, by their, their governments. Uh, it's particularly challenging today because, quite frankly, the uh, regime in North Korea seems to be getting a little bit stronger. I think we have to acknowledge that uh, the regime has consolidated powers, certainly by fear and certainly by executions, but they have done that. And in recent months, there's at least been some reports that their economy is performing a little bit better. That's not saying very much, considering the state of their economy is one of the worst in the world. But it does mean that uh, perhaps we have to look at more effective ways to accomplish our objectives than we have in the past. And I 
I understand, Mr. Chairman, the bill that you have filed, and I look forward to reviewing that with you. But I do think we need to take a look at what we can do to be more effective. And in any uh, 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 policy, we have to work very closely with our close ally, the Republic of Korea. Uh, President Park, as I understand, will be in town next week. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to uh, reinforce our mutual commitment uh, to uh, the security of the uh, Korea Peninsula and our goal to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. But I would suggest that we have to work beyond just uh, the, the Republic of Korea. We've got to work with Japan, we've got to work with China, and we have to work effectively uh, to prevent North Korea's ambitions uh, to uh, expand their, their nuclear threat and their threat to the security of the region. With that, I look forward to our witnesses and uh, our discussion. Thank you, Senator Cardin, and uh, thank you again to the distinguished panel uh, here today. Our first witness is Dr. Victor Cha, who serves as a senior advisor and Korea chair at the Center for International and Strategic Studies. From 2004 to 2007, Dr. Cha served as director for Asian affairs at the White House on the National Security Council, responsible for policies regarding the Korean Peninsula. Dr. Cha was also the deputy head of delegation for the United States at the six-party talks in Beijing and received two outstanding service commendations during his tenure at the NSC. Welcome, Dr. Cha, and uh, please, uh, we'll, we'll proceed uh, with your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Senator Garden. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I'm gonna make three sets of comments about the problem of North Korea today. Uh, one, about uh, their strategy of provocations. Two, about their leadership. And then three, sort of road ahead. Um, as we all know, there have been reports this month that the North Koreans might conduct some sort of provocation. Experts believe the most likely action would be some sort of launching of a satellite, which would be in violation of standing UN Security Council resolutions. Um, there are two systems of concern with regard to their launches uh, for the United States. The untested uh, KN-08 is an intermediate range ballistic missile, uh, and the flight tested UNHA-3 also known as the Tepedong-3 missile. The KN-08 could potentially make North Korea's nuclear force more survivable and less deterrable. Its estimated range would put it within um, the reach of Alaska and areas within reach of Guam as well. Um, <clears throat> North Korea's cyber operations cannot be ruled out either. Uh, CSIS just completed a study, as the Senator mentioned, uh, that warns that North Korea is developing its cyber capabilities in tandem with its other asymmetric threats and has, has embedded these capabilities in party and military institutions responsible for events like the Chunan sinking in 2010. This potentially means that cyber operations could become more than just criminal acts but could be integrated in the future with a military strategy designed to disrupt U.S. systems. So in this regard, I applaud the, the Senate bill, which has a focus. One of its fo focuses is on um, sanctioning the cyber activity. Uh, with regard to a nuclear test, commercial satellite imagery at least does not suggest a nuclear test is in the offing. But again, with North Korea, you can never be sure what is going to happen. I think the regime's strategy is to become recognized as a full-fledged nuclear weapons state with the capacity to reach the United States homeland with ballistic missiles and to deter the United States on the Korean Peninsula and in Asia. The sanctions under the Obama administration have not prevented the North from making progress in achieving this goal if we take seriously the recent spate of statements attesting to the advancement in their weapons programs. And uh, an appendix in my testimony lists all the statements that they've made recently. The North is not interested in diplomatic give and take, but to win through, 
to win through coercive bargaining. That is, their strategy is to disrupt the peaceful status quo because they know we care about it more than they do, and then negotiate a dialing down of the crisis in return for benefits, some of which will then be reinvested into their weapons development. The leadership is now in its fourth year, but there continues to emerge stories about purges of high-level officials. Some 70 high-level officials have been purge purged. The leadership is hypersensitive hyper to external criticism of the regime's legitimacy, as we've seen in their responses to things like the movie The Interview, the UN Commission of Inquiry report, and most recently, the DMZ loudspeaker broadcasts. Uh, to me, this does not appear to be the signs of a well-ensconced and secure leadership. In terms of the way forward, North Korea remains the greatest proliferation threat in the world today, and yet there are no clear and easy solutions. The issue has not been a front burner one for this administration, which has practiced a policy of strategic patience. In the meantime, Pyongyang is growing its capabilities every day and slowly but surely seeking to alter the strategic balance on the peninsula. Um, a battery of financial sanctions on individuals involved in proliferation, cyber operations, and human rights abuses must, must be applied the authorities of which were established in many of these presidential EOs, but have not yet been fully implemented. Um, the North Korean threat provides proximate cause for a tightening of trilateral political and defense cooperation between the United States, Japan, and South Korea, which has weakened recently. Allied trilateralism is not just important for deterrence against a nuclear North Korea, but for conveying to China the long-term strategic cost of the support of the regime. Finally, any future denuclearization strategy for North Korea must not ignore the human rights condition in the country. This is because the human rights issue hits at the very heart of the regime's legitimacy. In the United States, the champions of this movement number no more than 172, despite a refugee resettlement program that was signed into action 11 years ago. According to research by the, by the Bush Institute, these individuals are doing well, but they lack support networks. Support of these individuals is the most direct way to improve the human condition in North Korea and to spread word of the regime's lies. In the end, the North Korean state is built on a myth of utopian leadership. The more that myth is broken, the more the regime will be forced to change. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Shah. Our second witness is Mr. Jay Lefkowitz, who served from 2005-2009 as the United States Special Envoy on Human Rights in North Korea. From 2001 to 2003, he served in the White House as Deputy Assistant to President Bush for Domestic Policy and as General Counsel in the Office of Management and Budget. Earlier in his career, he served in the White House as Director of Cabinet Affairs and Deputy Executive Secretary to the Domestic Policy Council for President George H.W. Bush. Mr. Lefkowitz is now in the private sector, serving as partner at Kirkland & Ellis in New York City. Welcome, Mr. Lefkowitz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Senator Cardin. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to uh, share this uh, witness panel with uh, Dr. Cha and Ambassador Gallucci. Uh, over the last 21 years, since President Clinton signed a nuclear freeze agreement with North Korea, the ironically named Democratic People's Republic of Korea has become a nuclear state. It's also widely known that North Korea proliferates its nuclear technology. In 2007, Israel destroyed a nuclear facility in Syria that had been a beneficiary of North Korean nuclear technology. And just a few months ago, Secretary of Defense Carter stated that North Korea and Iran could be cooperating to develop a nuclear weapon. There is no doubt, therefore, as the chairman and Senator Carmen pointed out, that North Korea now poses a grave threat to those well beyond South Korea. 
next to whose border a significant portion of North Korea's million-man army is permanently stationed. Nor can one honestly say that with North Korea, its threats are mere bluster. It conducted nuclear tests in 2006, 2009, and 2013, and it has repeatedly engaged in unprovoked conventional acts of warfare against its neighbor to the south. We should not be surprised that a government that behaves this way mistreats its own citizens. There's no nation in the world with a more egregious human rights record than North Korea. To live in North Korea is to be subjected to total suppression of freedom of speech, religion, and expression of all sorts. And the regime operates an odious network of political concentration camps where people are subjected to systematic rape and torture. It's against this backdrop that the United States has wrestled with crafting a policy toward North Korea over the last two decades. And while Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama have all spoken harshly at times about North Korea's nuclear ambitions and human rights violations, none has been willing to take serious steps to effectuate a regime change for fear of destabilizing the region, and for good reason. Without a North Korean public ready and able to take control of its own destiny, a sudden regime collapse would create a highly unstable and politically intolerable situation for China, South Korea, and Japan, the three largest and most powerful neighbors in the vicinity. Thus, while none of North Korea's neighbors may be happy with the status quo, they may well believe that the status quo is a more attractive short-term option than the uncertain future of a sudden regime collapse. In lieu of a policy of rollback or of mere acquiescence in the status quo, successive American governments have adopted a policy of engagement and containment, vacillating back and forth between providing assistance, withdrawing assistance, food assistance, economic assistance, and the like. First, we had the agreed framework under President Clinton. Then we had the six-party talks uh, during President Bush's administration. And of course, the predictable result of all of this engagement has been a nuclear North Korea. Nor has this pattern changed during the Obama administration. In May 2009, as a welcome to the new president, North Korea conducted an underground nuclear test. Two years later, when the food situation took a turn for the worse, there was an agreement where in return for food aid, North Korea stopped, agreed to stop its nuclear activity in Yongbyon. And yet, no sooner was the ink dry on this agreement than North Korea launched a missile, leading to the suspension of the food shipments. So what should the United States do? Well, with a policy of regime change still premature, a policy focused only on containment is not likely to succeed, given North Korea's increasing offensive capabilities and belligerence and the unwillingness of China to cut trade with the regime. Instead, the United States should remain open to a policy of constructive engagement alongside containment, but with engagement on all issues, economic, security, and human rights, as we did in the waning years of the Cold War with the Helsinki uh, Accords and with legislation like the Jackson-Vanek Amendment. Ultimately, though, security will only come when North Koreans are empowered to take destiny in their own hands. As we saw from the experience of the captive nations of Eastern European 
Europe at the end of the Cold War, the promise of peacefully changing the situation in North Korea does not have to be a pipe dream. Military deterrence is crucial, but we have to work assiduously to build an international coalition. And in that light, it would be useful to take President Park's comments about the long-term goal of peaceful reunification seriously. As she travels to Washington, D.C. later this month, the Congress should explore not only more effective strategies to address North Korea's nuclear ambitions, but also what a strategy that focused on peaceful reunification would entail. Thank you, Mr. Lefkowitz. Our third witness is Ambassador Robert Gallucci, who has just started his tenure last month as director of the John W. Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. Ambassador Gallucci served as president of the MacArthur Foundation from 2009 to 2014. Prior to that, from 1996 to 2009, he served as dean of the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Ambassador Gallucci has 21 years of distinguished public service. As ambassador at large and special envoy for the U.S. Department of State, he dealt with threats posed by the proliferation of ballistic missiles and weapons of mass destruction. He was chief negotiator, U.S. negotiator, during the North Korean crisis of nuclear crisis of 1994 and served as assistant secretary of state for political military affairs and as deputy executive chairman of the U.N. Special Commission overseeing the disarmament of Iraq following the first Gulf War. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for your service and welcome to today's panel. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to be with you today. Uh, I am advised, I should say, that uh, my comments represent my views and not necessarily those of the Library of Congress or Georgetown University. Uh, it seems to me that a fair characterization of uh, the administration's policy, this administration's policy towards North Korea is one of drift. Um, it, <clears throat> Excuse me, I know it's been characterized as strategic patience, and I understand it is true that the Obama administration has explored and made overtures in an attempt to engage the North Koreans. The North Koreans, I understand, claim that they have sought the opportunity uh, to talk with the United States. Uh, we, for our part, uh, I understand, have seen a lack of sincerity on, sincerity on the part of the North Koreans and we have uh, insisted that they show us, give some indication of their sincerity, uh, make a concession of some kind. Uh, the North, for their part, has uh, seen, it says they see from us nothing but hostility and manifest in the military exercises between um, ourselves and the Republic of Korea. All that said, uh, neither side apparently has seen the necessity to resolve this current situation, this sort of standoff. The United States has been content, apparently, to demonstrate <coughs> alliance cohesion uh, and its deterrent posture uh, by containing North Korea and by the application of a sanctions regime. The North Koreans, for their part, have China to limit the impact of that sanctions regime uh, while they continue to develop their ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons unconstrained. So, we should, I would think, recognize that the North Korea situation, unlike fine wine, doesn't get better with the passage of time. The plutonium production, highly enriched uranium production, uh, has been variously estimated as moving the North Koreans from its current position uh, of maybe less than 10 nuclear weapons to tens of nuclear weapons within five years or so, with ballistic missiles that will, as my colleagues have noted, reach at least the western coast of the United States. 
In the meantime, uh, the North can be counted upon intermittently to do provocative things, whether they be along the DMZ, at sea, on the islands off the coast of the peninsula. And I think we need to remember that any of these incidents in the future could escalate into a general war, to conventional war conflict on the peninsula. We should not count, in other words, on restraint on the part of Seoul, the Republic of Korea. That will not always be the case. Less dramatically, this situation um, produces uh, an outcome uh, in which others in the region may plausibly respond, particularly when the North Koreans test ballistic missiles or nuclear weapons. They energize debates in Seoul and Tokyo over the adequacy of the American extended deterrent and the coming vulnerability of continental United States to a North Korean nuclear strike will only exacerbate those concerns. But for now, at least for me, the most dangerous North Korean activity is the transfer of ballistic missiles and particularly nuclear material. The Pakistani Gari missile is really a no-dung knockoff. The Iranian Shahab-3 is really a no-dung IRBM knockoff. And as my colleague noted, um, the most worrisome transfer of all, the transfer of a plutonium production reactor to Syria by the North Koreans, a plutonium production reactor, uh, which would be operating now under this circumstance, uh, were it not for the Israeli version of a non-proliferation policy, uh, and the flattening of that reactor. So patience alone in this case is not a virtue, and it certainly is not a re strategic response. I also want to give gratuitous advice about what we should do. Nine quick points. First, obviously sustain the deterrent posture uh, with exercises, but I would add without unnecessary provocation. And this may be taking due care with respect to our naval presence or the flights of our B-52s. Second, do of course maintain the sanctions regime, maybe even reinforce the sanctions regime but don't delude yourself into thinking that is itself a policy that will not stop those programs. And given the existence of China to mitigate those sanctions, it probably will not cause the North Koreans to come to the table on bended knee. Third, do push Beijing to be more accurate and use its influence in Pyongyang, but don't subcontract this issue, the most important strategic issue in the, right now in the Asia-Pacific region to our principal competitor in the Asia-Pacific region. Our allies are looking for us to take leadership here, and we should do that. Fourth, when or if we pursue negotiations, and I hope it's when, we should not make the goals of negotiations necessary preconditions for the negotiations. It is true that we don't want to engage with the North Koreans in any serious series of negotiations without having the North Koreans cease and desist the production of their nuclear material. So you don't want a situation in which we are negotiating and they are building. But beyond that, preconditions, I think, are not called for. Fifth, the modality is not critical. Six-party talks may be dead or they may be alive. What's important is that the United States and the North Koreans engage and that we keep our allies, particularly in Tokyo and Seoul, well informed. Sixth, 
Nuclear weapons issues cannot any longer be separated from general political issues and certainly not from human rights issues. We did that with the agreed, agreed framework. That was then and this is now and human rights must be part of an engagement. Seventh, the eventual outcome of formal, formal talks with the North Koreans must, must envision a non-nuclear North Korea or else we will be, with our negotiations, legitimizing the nuclear weapons program in North Korea. Eighth, and perhaps most important of all, we should find an opportunity to draw a bright but genuine red line on the transfer of sensitive nuclear equipment and material or material or technology to national actors or non-national actors. And ninth, I think we should quietly prepare with our allies, at least in, in uh, Seoul and in Beijing, uh, friends in Beijing, sometimes friends in Beijing, prepare for situation of a North Korean regime collapse, whether it be what has been called a hard landing or a soft landing. In conclusion, if we are clear about what we are doing and why we are doing it, we may not get those negotiations that we should strive for, but we can protect and project strength principle, determination to honor our alliances and not seem passive in the face of a genuine threat. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you again. Thank you to all three of you for your time and testimony today. And we'll begin our, our, our question uh, time this afternoon. Uh, just you've said it in your statements. I believe all three of you have said parts and pieces of this. Uh, Ambassador Gallucci, you just laid nine points out in terms of what a new policy or additional policies would look like. but to. Uh, to Dr. Cha, to Mr. Lefkowitz, and of course, Ambassador Gallucci, if you'd like to address this as well. Uh, the, the policy of strategic patience, as it is today, has it been an effective in deterring, has it been effective in deterring uh, North Korea? And what should that policy that replaces it, if it hasn't been, uh, look like? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I, Mr. Chairman, I don't think the, well, I should say, I think U.S. policy be, policy has been effective at deterring North Korea from a second invasion, right? So the creation of the U.S. ROK alliance in 1953, the primary purpose of it was to deter a second North Korean invasion. And in that regard, the alliance and the policy overall has been successful. Um, this concept of strategic patience, I don't think, has been successful at stopping their nuclear program and maybe marginally slowing it down, we really don't know. Uh, but based on their statements uh, and based on what we've seen in the demonstrations that they've done so far, they're, they're making progress. So um, yeah, yes, I do believe uh, US policy has deterred North Korea from uh, um, uh, con conducting sort of major outright aggression, but it has not been successful at um, at uh, preventing this program, and it's not been successful at deterring missile tests or nuclear tests or cyber activity, for that matter. Um, what should be the policy going forward? I mean, this is the question I think that we all struggle with. Um, uh, I, I agree, agree entirely with my um, colleagues that uh, whatever that policy is, the sanctions part of it, the so-called sticks, uh, are very important not just to uh, apply cost to North Korea for not coming to the negotiating table, but those are um, things that should continue to be applied as a part of our denuclearization 
policy overall and our nonproliferation policy overall. The concept of constructive engagement that Mr. Lefkowitz mentioned, this idea of applying, being tough, but at the same time being open to a discussion, a broader discussion of future of the Korean Peninsula in the Northeast and Northeast Asia, I think is an interesting idea. Um, um, you know, in many cases, some have argued that uh, while our focus is the nuclear problem, we need to widen the aperture a little bit uh, to take into account economic insecurity, human rights, and other sorts of issues. And, you know, perhaps it is a time to think of or do something like that. Uh, but it would re require a real commitment on the part of any administration, whether it's the current administration or the next administration, to really want to see this through to the end. The problem, in my opinion, with regard to North Korea policy in general has been, for every administration, um, it's one of these issues where if there's a crisis, the initial reaction is to dampen down the crisis enough to put it on a shelf and then move on to the next issue, because there always are more important issues, whether it's in the Middle East or whether it's the economy or other sorts of things. And this has worked to North Korea's strategic advantage because they have managed to continue to develop their programs over, over all of these years. So I'm reminded very much, you mentioned the cyber, I'm reminded very much of the cyber issue because uh, right now, you know, North Korea's tech base on cyber is really not that strong and we see them doing some small things. Uh, but they're clearly moving in the direction of trying to integrate it into an overall military strategy. Initially, we might think that's not a threat right now, but you know, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, when North Korea was experimenting with a small five megawatt reactor, we didn't think that was gonna be a major threat then, and look at what it's become today. So um, certainly a more proactive policy than strategic patience is necessary, uh, one that continues to apply or even heighten the sanctions on the regime, uh, but at the same time uh, remains open to something that widens the aperture uh, while keeping nuclear weapons as the key objective, but addressing things like economic insecurity and human rights. Mr. Lefkowitz. Thank you. Um, I agree. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I agree very much with what uh, Dr. Cha has said. I, I think when you think about strategic patience, it, it kind of reminds me of a prevent defense in football. And the one thing you know whenever your team goes to a prevent defense is, the other team's gonna move the ball all the way down the field. Now, maybe they won't get into the end zone, but they're in the red zone, and who knows what will happen if we're patient for too much longer. But again, I think it's clear that regime change is not a viable option for a whole host of reasons now, and so I think a full engagement, a full court press, dealing with the nuclear issue, dealing with economic issues, both with carrots and sticks, we saw how much effect on North Korea, $25 million in real sanctions uh, exacted from them during the Banco Delta Asia situation you know, a decade ago. Um, that really resonated. And using economic sanctions with carrots, combining them with a human rights approach where we really pushed uh, for family unification visits, supporting independent civilian broadcasts, cultural exchanges. I think a comprehensive policy is an appropriate policy. Human rights is not 
an end in and of itself of U.S. policy in a foreign country, to be sure, but it can certainly be part of a coherent, multifaceted, strategic approach to a country like North Korea. And with respect to China, I, I certainly agree with Ambassador Gallucci. We don't want to subcontract our North Korea policy to China. But we also have to be honest enough to recognize that China is the biggest player in that region and has the most direct influence over North Korea. And China's objectives and aims are not necessarily what ours are in that region, which means if we are putting together a North Korea policy, it has to be part and parcel of our overall China policy. Ambassador. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Briefly, uh, I think you find the three of us sort of in violent agreement here, generally speaking, in, in the approach. I think Dr. Cha did a service by disaggregating the deterrence issue. Yes, I, th I don't think any of us are, are worried that the North Koreans uh, believe they would get away with an invasion of the South without massive consequences. But it clearly, we, we have not found the formula that deters the North Koreans from expanding their weapons programs, their ballistic missile program, and particularly their nuclear weapons program. So it's not working in that sense. Or to be a little clearer, it's failed. <laughs> it's failed that test. We haven't stopped them. Uh, moreover, and I'm, I know I'm, I, I emphasized this before, but I want to say again, we failed to deter the North Koreans from transferring a plutonium production reactor to Syria. We can't afford that. If they decide they want hard currency so much and they've got enough fissile material with a highly enriched uranium program now to supplement their plutonium program and they become a source of that material for another country or non-national group, no one will think we've done very, very well at protecting the national security of the United States. So I think fundamental deterrence, yes, but a policy that has really managed to contain this threat, no, we have not succeeded at that. And implicit in uh, the recommendations that I've at least put forward is the idea that at some point engaging the North is the right thing to do. I, I have, don't have a particular view on a, a new set of sanctions, except I would hate for us to fall in love with a sanctions regime. That is not an end in itself. It's only good if it produces an outcome, and I do not believe it will produce the outcome we're saying we do not yet have. It, it might play a role in getting them to the table, or it might alienate them so they don't go to the table. But destroying their programs, it will not do, and it will not do it certainly because China is there to mitigate the impact of those sanctions. So we ought to put some perspective on that. Thank you. Well, once again, thank you all for your, your testimony. As you know, we've just finished, uh, not finished, we've been engaged in a long review of the Iran nuclear policies. And during this review, uh, we have asked frequently, what is Iran's intentions? Why do they want to become a nuclear weapons state? So, like to know that answer to see how we can counter that with an effective uh, uh, strategy. So I'm trying to understand what North Korea's ultimate objective is in wanting to become a nuclear weapons state. One could very well argue that it's, uh, uh, it's regime survival, that if they have um, the, the capacity of a nuclear weapon, it's unlikely that other powers would want to use military against them because of the fear of a nuclear retaliation. Uh, if, that's case, if that's the case, if it's regime survival, one could also argue then 
advancements on human rights, particularly freedom of expression, knowing this government's going to be extremely difficult because I think they look at that as a threat to their regime because of the nature of their leadership. Some of you mentioned the fact that one of our objectives is to prevent the transfer of this technology, which might be an economic incentive for North Korea to get some cash from using its uh, nuclear capacity. And if that's the issue, then there's ways that we can try to counter that. Or maybe they are looking for an aggressive position on the continent. Uh, so uh, could you just share with me what you believe Korea's, uh, North Korea is trying to accomplish uh, by perfecting a nuclear weapon? Um, uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Senator. Um, so I think the three, I don't disagree with any of those three theories that you put forward with regard to why they might be interested in nuclear weapons. Um, I think, um, uh, but let me offer a couple of others. Um, I think the whole desire for uh, nuclear weapons comes down not necessarily to survival of the state, but to um, the nature of the leadership. Um, you know, this sort of cult of personality leadership uh, will forever feel insecure. They always feel insecure. So even if they had a peace treaty with the United States, they would still feel insecure. Um, uh, even if there were no uh, Western forces and South Korean forces arrayed uh, uh, south of the DMZ, they would still feel insecure. So I think a lot of it comes down to the nature of the leadership. Leaderships like this that suppress the rights of their people, that seek uh, complete and total control, do so out of you know, and sort of inherent insecurity that is based in the nature of the leadership. So I think that's one of the sources. The other derives from that, which is the constant desire to try to legitimize this form of government and seeking the ultimate weapon uh, as a symbol of state strength helps to legitimize this leadership. So I think that's another reason that you know, doesn't have necessarily to do with economics or with broader state survival. It's a very, it's very much- Both of those leadership. objectives, and I don't disagree with you. I, 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 it's hard for me to understand how they think because mm -hmm. of their nature of their leadership. If that's true, then it's going to be very hard to negotiate uh, away from those two issues because right. it's sort of their DNA right. more so than it is something that they're willing to trade for concessions yeah. as they see it. Uh, let, let me, I, I want to get the other two witnesses, but let me throw into this equation, and maybe I'll ask Mr. Lefkowitz first. Are, are, are we past the point of no return of stopping North Korea from having a nuclear weapon capacity? Um, I think we are probably, in my view, past the point of no return in terms of preventing them from being a nuclear power unless they overplay their hand and, and the regime falls. And if it falls hard, it's hard to know what the aftermath looks like and who is really in control of those nukes and, and the territory. Um, I think that they have not yet successfully uh, tested proper delivery systems for their missiles. I think there's a long way for them still to go uh, in their efforts, and I think they are, by all accounts, intent on achieving um, really fully operational nuclear capabilities. But 
Um, I, I don't think that the United States has any intention, nor do I think it would necessarily be appropriate uh, to go in with force to try to undo what's been done. So we really are dealing with a combination of containment and deterrence, and the problem is uh, it's, it's, it's a game where patience is, is not necessarily a virtue. And I, I agree with Dr. Cha that when we have a regime that's motivated not genuinely by defensive principles and, and not genuinely by a desire to develop nuclear weapons as, as the United States originally did to, to actually combat autocratic regimes, but really as part of a cult of personality for national pride and to, to really uh, potentially have the ability to proliferate, to, to raise hard currency, uh, I don't think that um, the status quo and a, a status quo which we tolerate through strategic patience is really a viable alternative. Ambassador Galusha, I'll, I'll let you respond, but let me throw one more question in and respond to either one of the two. You were talking about direct negotiations or discussions between the United States and North Korea, at least that's was one of the things. Uh, the Iran nuclear talks, the P5 plus one, was an interesting arrangement. One could argue whether it was successful or not. We're not going to get involved in that today, please. Uh, that question is not on the table. But uh, it took the world powers and did not take the regional powers. And that's how those discussions took place with Iran. Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the six talks for North Korea involves the major players in that region, certainly Korea and, and Japan, but also China. It, it seems to me it would be challenging for direct talks between the United States and North Korea, particularly as it relates to China, but I would also expect there would be some concerns with the Republic of Korea and Japan on those types of dynamics, as long as with other countries. So uh, are you looking at the, the Iranian discussions and is that why you're suggesting just two-party talks? Or maybe you're not suggesting that. Um, thank you, Senator. Uh, I, I see three questions there that I want to respond to. Um, the, the f and, and we may have some violent disagreement here. Let me take the first one, which for Don't me Don't make it violent. Disagreement's fine. That's right. Uh, the question about whether the, uh, as I understood it, the North Korean nuclear weapons posture right now is a fait accompli, we're done, it's a nuclear weapon state. For me, the answer to that is absolutely not. And it had better be absolutely not. Because the North Koreans want it to be absolutely so. They've changed their constitution to make it absolutely so. And it behooves us to recognize that states have built nuclear weapons. South Africa, and then dismantled them and subjected the material, fissile material, to IAEA safeguards. Three states were born nuclear weapon states and gave up their weapons, former states of the Soviet Union. This, this is not like, as someone said, the loss of virginity. This is reversible, and it ought to be, it must be, I would argue, a tenant of the negotiation that the eventual outcome would be for the North Korean state in any serious negotiation to become a non-nuclear weapon state. Now, we all know the challenges of verification, of monitoring, et cetera, and the difficulty of making sure there are not 
for objects somewhere in that country. We get that. But there's a, an issue here that's beyond legal, and it'll be important to the South Koreans, and it'll be important to the Japanese if we engage with the North Koreans, that that is the goal we're going after, because that is their status enshrined in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and the North Koreans, as a result of what they've done, should not come out ahead. That's on the first point. The, the, a second point was about what it is, in terms of motivation, drives the North Koreans. Just about 20 years ago, 21, 22 years ago, I led negotiations that began in 1993 and didn't, in the spring, it didn't end until the fall of 1994 with the North Koreans. And we had a lot of time to talk about why the North Koreans had a nuclear weapons program. I don't mean by saying we had a lot of time that we came to the right answer. I meant we talked about it a lot. And one thing I became convinced of, and I, like Victor here, found your dichotomy or classification to be quite uh, uh, useful. Uh, but one thing we were quite sure of is that the North Koreans, for whatever else they had in mind with these nuclear weapons, were worried about the United States. And I had one-on-one -on -one conversations with their principal negotiator in which he told me they watched the United States' action in Desert Storm 1. And they watched us do what we did. Later, they got to see what we did in, in Iraq 2. And they could see that we were capable of accomplishing regime change. What they were looking for was something as a deterrent, yes, but if they were going to give it up in negotiations, a relationship with the United States of America which would allow them to believe that they could count on the United States not conducting actions to achieve regime change. A political settlement that was persuasive. Were they very soon after they signed that deal in 1994, cheating on that deal, the agreed framework? I don't know how soon, but certainly they did after that. Were they hedging? Or did they intend necessarily to have a, a weapons program? I don't know the answers to those questions. But I am persuaded that had they gotten the political arrangement and they were satisfied that they did not need to worry about the United States of America, that a security need would have been met. I'm not saying that that would have meant no other nuclear weapons program. I, I just don't know. But I think that is a driver for the, for the, uh, for the North Koreans. The, your last point, Senator. Was the six-party talks versus two-party yeah, talks. Yeah, I, 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 I had two-party talks. <laughs> and after every negotiation with the North Koreans in the evening, I first met with the delegation from the Republic of Korea and then the next day, I would go and meet with the Japanese, and I'd meet with the uh, Chinese. But the South Koreans, as our treaty ally and closest in terms of the, the threat from North Korea, we met with every single day that we negotiated. We also met with the North Koreans. And we kept the Japanese as a, a treaty ally fully informed. And pretty, pretty fairly often, uh, we were also talking to the Chinese these negotiations were mostly conducted in, in Geneva. So I think that's not a bad model. I'm, I, I, don't, I don't think the modality is terribly important because when you have six-party talks, nothing happens with six parties. It happens when two parties get together. And the important thing is that those discussions don't cause a, a break of any kind in our alliance either with the Japanese or the Republic of Korea. I, I appreciate that. I, I found your response on all three points very helpful. I'd, 
President Obama might disagree with you with P5 plus one equals six, so I don't know. <laughs> I have some other questions, but I'll wait to the next round. Uh, thank you again. And, uh, Dr. Shaw, you and I have had this discussion before, this last conversation talking about six-party talks, two-party talks. Right now, no party talks. And so does it behoove the, 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 the trilateral alliance of, of uh, United States, Japan, South Korea, others that may be a part of eventual six-party talks, does it behoove us to have at least five-party talks where we are all getting together finally and talking about North Korea? Right now, we don't seem to be even doing that. Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, I think that's a very good point. When, um, um, so when we, Bob did bilateral talks, we did six-party talks. He did his in Geneva, we did ours in Beijing. Um, the, um, um, the whole concept of six-party talks was that to bring all the stakeholders to the table, all who had an interest in the resolution of the North Korean nuclear problem. And if we couldn't get agreement among the six, then we should get agreement among as many of the others as possible. And right now, I think we're in a situation where uh, the United States, the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Russians, and the Chinese all want the North Koreans to come back to the table and engage in a genuine negotiation. I think it's fair to say that all five parties have agreement on this. And so um, if the North Koreans continue on a path where they just provoke or they test and they do things, uh, it seems to me that that suggestion makes perfect sense. The five parties should get together, uh, if anything, to compare notes, to figure out a way forward. Now, I certainly know that uh, the administration goes, uh, sends their envoys out and they go and do bilateral meetings with each of the members of the six-party talks, but. Um, convening the five in Beijing, really to sort of chart a path forward, figure out what, what the next steps are, determine how to ramp up sanctions. If, if all parties are in agreement on ramping up sanctions, I think uh, makes, makes perfect sense. Um, the other thing that I would say is, you know, again, on this question of whether, they're, whether we can get them to give up their programs and whether it's, it's um, the North Korean case is different from the three who were born with weapons and the ones who produced, uh, created them and gave them up. I, to me, the, the main question with regard to North Korea is their strategy at this point is to establish themselves as a recognized nuclear weapon state. And at that point, they may be interested in engaging with the United States and others in what they would call arms control negotiations, uh, like, they, like the United States did with the Soviet Union. That's the position I think that they're seeking. And, and I think they're waiting out both the current administration here and the administration in South Korea and ramping up their capabilities to try to establish themselves for the next administration that comes in. And so for any policymaker, that's going to be the question. Can you pull them off that path of seeking to become a recognized nuclear weapon state who wants to engage in arms control negotiations? In, in my conversations last month in both Japan and, and uh, South Korea, uh, talking to um, the, the foreign ministry in, in Japan and, and uh, to President Park in Seoul, uh, talking about the importance of a strong trilateral relationship, how we, what we can do, what measures we can do uh, to make sure that the United States, South Korea, and Japan are building a strong alliance in terms of dealing with North Korea and also addressing China and how China can use its economic leverage against North Korea. So I guess I have uh, two questions for all of you. The first question would be, what can we be doing to strengthen our trilateral alliance between, uh, between Japan, South Korea, and the United States? 
And secondly, I think, Ambassador Gallucci, you, you, you said it in your statement, not so long as China continues to moderate the impact of sanctions in relation to the effectiveness of uh, China's willingness to, or the willingness of China to use its leverage against North Korea as they're moderating our sanctions right now. So how can we most effectively use that trilateral relationship, the bolstered, strengthened trilateral relationship to encourage China not to moderate the impact of sanctions, but indeed work directly with uh, North Korea using its economic leverage? So whoever wants to take that one, feel free. And then just uh, would love to hear from all three of you. Um, there have been some bad ideas on how to do that. And an example of a bad idea would be for either Tokyo or Seoul to say that the North Korean program as it is advancing <clears throat> is going to cause us to rethink our non-nuclear status. That's a bad idea that I will not now attribute, but it was by a senior policymaker from another administration. Um, I, I don't believe that's, that's the way we ought to go. I think that the, uh, Beijing is a very sophisticated approach to regional politics. I think that uh, the, an approach in Beijing that is clearly one that is endorsed by, if not joined with, the South Koreans and the, and the Japanese in Beijing to say that we need a new initiative, we need a new push from China to use its influence. I'm not opposed to that. That's not the subcontracting problem. Um, long ago, in, a, in another universe, 20 years ago, I made several trips to Beijing in order to persuade them to be more active uh, in Pyongyang. They know the, that their relationship is, is rocky and more rocky at different times, but they still are the one country that has the most influence uh, as a result of what it does for, for, uh, for, uh, for Pyongyang. So I think the, the, the idea that you have had of the trilateral relationship between our treaty allies and ourselves, using that as the, as the basis, as a platform for approaching uh, the Chinese to get them to move on the North Koreans and, and to have a serious plan to follow that with to engage the North Koreans. I mean, we don't want to push the Chinese on this and really not to be, you know, to be too busy somewhere else, which I believe we have been on occasion, uh, not to engage the North Koreans. When we're ready, I think perhaps the first step after our allies create that, that uh, trilateral relationship uh, as a springboard to, the, to leverage in, in Beijing. Um, so in terms of the question of um, how we can consolidate trilateral U.S.-Japan-Iraq, trilateral, uh, I mean, I agree with that entirely, Senator. I think that's uh, one of the most important things that we can do now to, to uh, both um, solidify the U.S. position in the region and to deter North Korea. Um, very clearly, one very important aspect of this is improving the bilateral relationship between Seoul and Tokyo. It's been quite tattered uh, recently, um, and... Um, but it looks like it's on the mend, and, and so I think that's a positive thing. And so I think your trips to the region were important in that regard to help um, impress upon both sides the need to improve their bilateral relationship. Um, <clears throat> um, at the very highest levels, there's already been one trilateral summit between the U.S., Japan, and Korea, uh, President Obama, Prime Minister Abe, and uh, President Park. Um, and we have a number of opportunities coming up this, in, this fall 
uh, a number of multilateral meetings, G20 and others, where uh, you could affect more of those trilateral meetings. That sends an important political signal to domestic audiences about the importance that the leaders place on trilateralism, a message that is not lost in Beijing, I can, I can tell you for certain. Uh, more specifically, and there needs to be a lot of more information and intelligence sharing uh, between the three countries because that is deficient. Uh, missile defense cooperation is certainly another area where there's opportunities uh, given the very proximate threat from North Korea. And also uh, just general phase zero uh, trilateral cooperation on piracy, disaster relief, these other sorts of things helps to improve readiness uh, among the three sides. Um, that, those signs of trilateral coordination and consolidation do impose costs on China. Uh, if the Chinese understand that part of the reason all this activity is happening is because of their support of North Korea, that imposes costs on China. And I think so one hopes it, it, it will affect the way they calculate their strategic equities on the Korean Peninsula, whether it should be with the North or whether it should be with the South. I think um, one of the, so that's certainly one way of doing these things to impose costs on China. The other is to do these things, but then also be open to more strategic discussion with China on the future of the Korean Peninsula. The, the one piece of all the multilateralism in Asia is there really has not been a discussion among the United States, South Korea, and China about the future of the Korean Peninsula. Those are the three actors that will be the most affected. Um, and, and that has been missing. And as long as the regime looks as unpredictable and uncertain as it does, you know, with a young leader that, for which there is not a clear line of succession in the North Korean royalty system, the next in line in succession is his infant daughter. Um, so there really isn't a line of succession, and the economic situation is getting worse and worse. Um, there needs to be discussion. That, that may add some maturity to that. <laughs> <laughs> well taken, point well taken. Uh, Mr. Chairman, um, I, I certainly embrace your view that we need to consolidate and strengthen the trilateral relationship. These are two countries, uh, Japan and South Korea, with whom we have shared values, a lot of influence, strong historic relationships, and now is the time actually for the United States to step up and, and show that we are committed to working with them on their own regional security issues. It's certainly not the time to take a step back and cede any of that power and authority and influence uh, to, to China. But recognizing, as we must, that China is the critical actor with respect to North Korea, and as, as Victor just said, we haven't really had a serious dialogue with China and with South Korea about the future of the peninsula. And it's important because these regimes, these Stalinist regimes, eventually crumble. Let's stipulate that we're not going to necessarily overthrow the regime, but over time, and it could be a short time as what happened in Romania, could be a slightly longer time, but the regime is going to crumble from within, and we should certainly be doing what we can to support the defector community, to embrace the human rights issues, and to help promote some of that type of dissent within that society. But to do so, we have to be prepared for the aftermath. And fundamentally, a policy that says the answer is reunification of the peninsula, which is our stated policy objective in South Korea's, uh, 
may very well be completely antithetical to China's objective. And so we really do have to engage directly with China and in a trilateral way with China and with the ROK on that issue. Mr. Chairman, thanks again. Um, I, I want to cover one more point. I'll try to do it very briefly. And that is each of you have mentioned that we must be focused on the human rights advancements if we're going to accomplish our objectives on the Korean Peninsula. And I couldn't agree a few more. But you've also mentioned that one of the principal objectives of North Korea is the preservation of regime. And it seems to me uh, this, and knowing their DNA, they're not going to voluntarily agree to allow for free press and dissent and et cetera. Uh, so how do we effectively influence human rights in North Korea? And number two, it's difficult to get the State Department to focus on human rights when, when nuclear weapons are engaged. You know, that always seems to be a secondary subject, if it's even a secondary subject. So how do we get the United States to put a higher priority on invisibility on human rights? And how do we get the North Koreans uh, willing to move and make progress in this area? Sure. Uh, Thank you, Senator. Um, when I had the privilege of serving as the special human rights envoy to North Korea, I certainly uh, can echo your, your sense that it was hard sometimes to get the State Department to engage properly in the issue. Um, I worked for a president who cared deeply about the issue. He actually gave all of us in the West Wing copies of Aquariums of Pyongyang to read, and then talked to us about it and invited the author in for a very highly publicized meeting. And he met with other defectors in highly publicized meetings. Uh, we worked hard to try to help defectors who had somehow been able to escape from North Korea get out, and then when they got out, they came either to the United States or to South Korea. We helped with radio broadcasts into uh, Korea, I, I, into North Korea. I think there is a lot that Congress and the United States can do. I think the North Korea Sanctions Enforcement Act is a very good start. I think we should make significantly more financial resources available for independent civilian broadcasts. Um, so there's a lot we can do, but it starts by recognizing that Human rights issues are not completely separate from military and strategic security issues. And as I said before, I understand that our principal objective is and should be the security issue. Changing North Korea and helping North Korea change from within is ultimately going to help bring about a safer and more secure peninsula. Um, the the, uh, the nuclear weapons issue will be the objective of any future negotiation with North Korea. That's very clear. But the way to get there is to give North Korea what this administration, what previous administrations have all said, which is you need to make a strategic decision, a strategic choice. Um, their position on human rights is part of that strategic choice. In many ways, any nuclear agreement in the future is not credible. Uh, unless there is other evidence that North Korea has made a strategic decision to take a different path. And so in that sense, the human rights element is actually very important for the credibility, the genuineness of any, any future agreement. Um, <clears throat> in short of that, 
the constant uh, uh, awareness raising and the pressure that it's putting on the regime in terms of human rights could translate into better terms and treatments of NGOs and humanitarian groups that are going into North Korea. These groups go in under the worst conditions in violation of all their working norms uh, and principles. And so that could change if the North Koreans were to try to address that. I would agree with everything that Jay said in terms of broadcasting information, but I would also add, as I did in my testimony, that there's also an opportunity to help the human condition here in the United States with the 170 or so refugees that are here now who have gone through an incredible ordeal to get here. Um, and they are the living champions of uh, future North Korea. When, when we negotiated the agreed framework, we went to great lengths to insulate the negotiations from human rights concerns. And there were human rights concerns 21, 22 years ago, and we did not put them on the table, and that was with malice of forethought. I mean, we wanted to deal with one issue, and if we could keep the human rights issues away, then that would be down the road somewhere. I, I think that was the right thing to do then. It clearly is no longer. We've gone through a period now where it, does, it, is, it is not conceivable to me that the North Koreans would enter into, North Koreans would enter into a negotiation in which only their nuclear weapons program was on the table. Um, they want more politically and economically and I'm, I'm fairly certain, based upon the experience that Victor had in, uh, in other administrations, that, that the North Koreans want to settle the Korean War. They want a treaty of peace. Uh, they want all the political stuff that will go with that. And we, in that context, will want to see performance on human rights. And that's how I think the nuclear issue, if, it, if it's going to be solved, will be solved, and that's how realists, I, I mean that in the kind of academic sense, realists will come to see human rights as essential to an agreement with North Korea. So that's half, it's the other half, is what you expect out of human rights, because I think, Senator, you're quite correct. If you expect Jeffersonian democracy, you will once again be disappointed, as we are repeatedly when we look at what happens in other countries. Uh, and we look at the Arab Spring, et cetera. So uh, we have to be realistic about what's plausible. There are lots of other models out there of countries we deal with where they do not torture their own people. And, but they're a long way from what we would consider to be an adequate democratic system that's fully respectful of human rights. So I think if there's some movement on that side, uh, it, it's not entirely implausible that there's uh, a place where we can meet in the middle. I just add there, if you look at the TPP sections on good governance and human rights, you see that we are developing some international standards that are not our standards, but our minimum standards. Well, I want to thank the, the witnesses who are here today. I think we could both go back and forth for a while longer, but uh, I'm glad we finished. And that note, Senator Cardin has been a champion on human rights issues around the globe. And uh, to have these conversations, I think we do have to include uh, the human rights conditions and uh, the, the acts in North Korea as part of these discussions. I think it's critically important. It seems to be one of the things that actually uh, is making a difference in terms of their response and getting attention. So uh, thank you 
to all of you for appearing today before us and providing testimony. Excellent today. Uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business this Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Say if I didn't get to ask a question on cybersecurity, uh, that will be submitted to the rec for the record. Uh, we ask the witnesses to respond as promptly as possible. Uh, your responses will also be made a part of the record. And thank you for traveling here today. Thank you for your participation today. And thanks to the committee. This committee is now adjourned. Get going.